The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food health and agriculture, and find food truth. And I find that the individuals who are best at finding food truth are those who grow it themselves for us. So it is a great honor and privilege to welcome Mr. Howard Vliger. He is a biological and crop nutrition advisor. He lives on his family farm near Maurice, Iowa. Howard, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, I wanted to interview you. Your name was actually given to me, unbeknownst to you, a couple of years ago by a colleague of mine who's also a registered dietitian in Iowa, and she said, you ought to talk to Howard Vliger. You know, he's been doing some research on GMO feed and the effects on farm animals, and lo and behold, here comes a report in the Journal of Organic Systems. You are the second author. The title is A Long-Term Toxicology Study on Pigs Fed a Combined Genetically Modified Soy and Maize or Corn Diet. And there you have a long list of authors on this paper, including a researcher based in Australia. And so I really wanted to talk to you finally about your experience on the farm, what it's like for Midwestern farmers, and your keen observations about what happens to animals who are fed GMO crops and what those implications might mean for humans. So tell me, how long have you been farming? Well, all my life, but officially... I started with my own farm ground in 1979. My father died in 1981, and then I took over everything after that. And you describe yourself as a biological farmer. What does that mean? My definition of it would be paying attention to the whole system that we are to work with. Mm -hmm. The biological diversity in the soil is the most misunderstood and potentially the most abused component in the soil. Many people are familiar with the fertilizer and the nutrients that need to be applied for raising a crop, but there's too little understanding about how to nurture and improve the biological diversity. And the, and the more that you do that, the better off it is for everybody. It's better for the soil. It's better for the crop you're raising. It's better for the animals that consume the crop. It's better for the environment. It's better for the people that eat the produce and or the meat. You know, Howard, I recently had a chance to drive through Iowa, and I don't know if you get the same feeling that I do, but it stunned me because really all that I saw was mostly corn and soybeans, and occasionally you'd get a stench from a hog confinement facility. And I know there's a lot of good work going on in Iowa with healthy farms, healthy communities. My colleagues or who are dietitians are involved with that work, and I know that you yourself sit on the Council for the Healthy Food Systems Board. But what do you think when you see nothing but miles and miles of this monocropping system? I see a complete system that's been, that, that both has failures and has been driven to that point. And there's many facets that have contributed to it. The consolidation and concentration and heaven forbid you use the word monopolization of the companies that provide inputs to farmers for crop production, but the side of it where the the packing industry and the grain 
merchandisers and the consolidation that took place there. It was a designed plan, and the, the farmers that are caught in the system, a lot of them are trying to survive in various ways, and they're running the numbers to survive. I certainly don't agree with it, but I don't blame them because they're not really responsible for what's happened. And it, it's very concerning long-term as far as from a sustainable standpoint. We need to change what's happening in the crop and livestock production, both for the sake of the environment and all of us that are living in the environment. Howard, who do you think is responsible for this shift? Ooh, <laughs> multinationals have played a big role in it. I have some opinion about how that has all transpired. I guess the thing that I would suggest to people is if you want to read a book, and I think a well-written book and a well-documented book about how the system has changed and, and how we've seen the diversity of the family farmer disappear, both from a crop and livestock standpoint. The Seeds of Destruction by, Doc, by uh, William Engdahl is a book that I would highly recommend people read because, it, again, it's very, very well-written. It's very well-documented and uh, referenced, mm -hmm. and I think it tells the story quite well. Well, thank you for that. And I, I also recently interviewed Winona Hodder, who wrote Foodopoly. And I think you're right on target to talk about the monopolization of our food system. That is indeed what her book is all about. Again, this consolidation and what happens when you've got all this vertical integration. And I know because you describe yourself as a student of the soil, that I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one that drives through these regions and feels a true fear in their heart for the loss of biodiversity. I see the loss of the biodiversity on top of the soil, but as you have been such a keen observer, that certainly translates to loss of biodiversity within the soil as well. Yes, and, and it's going well beyond the, the borders of that now with the damage that's being documented specifically with the use of glyphosate, mm -hmm. which is the active chemical ingredient in the most widely used herbicides in the world. Right. And of course, the non-selective nature of it, it, it's being used in ways that are very, very detrimental. The damage to the biological community in the soil is significant. And now we have science that is further documenting that damage going up the food chain. Dr. Monica Kruger from Germany is a veterinary pathologist who's done outstanding work at the university there and she has documented significant damage to the beneficial microflora in the digestive tract of animals, and it only takes a tenth of a part per million of glyphosate residue to cause significant harm to good organisms, which are necessary for both the control of the opportunistic and optimum digestion of the feedstuffs that the animals consume. And it that happens even though they may not be consuming genetically engineered crops because of the pre-harvest application of glyphosate, which has become commonplace on way too many crops, in my opinion, and I think should be discontinued immediately. Mm -hmm. I wanted to share with you that I had recently served on a U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance panel in Chicago, and I was one of the outliers. I was one that was talking about using the precautionary principle and making sure we had long-term feeding trials to make sure that we weren't introducing something into the broader environment 
where we didn't have long-term safety, environmental, and human health research. And again, I was an outlier, and what most of the people there at this particular conference, which was a, a big biotechnology conference, they felt like we needed genetic engineering technology in agriculture to, of course, we hear the message, right, feed the world, and to drive yields up on the farm. And I'm just not seeing that. When I talk to farmers, they tell me a completely different story from the industry line. And I wonder, since you've got this frontline experience, how you might, how do you address these kinds of, these these messages that were given in the media that are repeated so often that we might tend to believe them? But do you truly believe that we need genetic engineering to feed the world as a farmer yourself? Absolutely not. That story, and that's a polite description of it, calling it a story, has been told for a long time. The first research that we did on our farm with genetically engineered crops was BT corn. And we were working with Golden Harvest Seed Corn Company at that time. And we put a plot in every year. And they said that BT would increase yield. Of course, it gave the plant, quote-unquote, natural corn borer defense or pesticide in the plant. It was not natural tolerance, which if you have good, sound agronomic breeding program in your genetics, you can breed natural characteristics into the plant so that they don't need the BT. Mm-hmm. And the hybrid that we compared two years in a row had the good, sound, natural, all-around agronomic characteristics. Mm-hmm. And we had them side-by-side in the field. And both years, it cost us over $55 an acre lost revenue by having the BT. It was a combination of the increased cost of the seed. The first year, it didn't yield as well. The moisture was the same. The second year, the yield was identical, but the BT was five points wetter, which caused a significant amount of moisture dock at harvest, and it was 55 and $57 an acre. It cost us to have that BT, and when we offered that BT grain to the livestock in a, in a small little test, they walked away from it. Mm. Well, I've heard how many stories where people have had both eyes open and watched what was going on and what the animals would tell them. And and I have pictures of the people have given me where they've put a, an ear of corn on a tree, a conventional ear of corn and a triple stack ear of corn, and let the squirrels tell them which is which. One gentleman has the two ears side by side, and he took the picture nine months after he put the ears of corn on the tree, and the conventional ear of corn is nothing but a cob, and there's very few kernels taken off of the triple stack ear of corn. Mm. And we've seen that the same thing with livestock. You know, a lot of guys commented, well, the deer won't eat the Roundup Ready corn. They will if they have to, if there's nothing else around. Right. But what does that tell you when the animals won't eat it and... and I debated uh, Vice President Al Gore and Ames about that when he was running for president and shared that little story with him and, and he was saying, Well these you know, these scientists have proved this is safe. I says, 
Mr. Vice President, I respectfully disagree with you, but I says, I think my cows are maybe smarter than some of those scientists because they know better than to eat that. Mm-hmm. Well... So it's... And the consistency of the problems have never faded if you are paying attention to what's really going on. Well, that's really the issue, isn't it? And I love the way you say, for people who have both eyes open... And my fear is that farmers' choices are dwindling. But I think maybe we might be jumping ahead of ourselves. And for the sake of my listeners, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what genetically modified food is. And that is no mistake. I can tell you that as a registered dietitian, individuals in my profession, there are 70,000 of us, we receive messages all the time from the food industry, including the International Food Information Council, including Monsanto. They're always at our, at our meetings, and they provide information to inform dietitians so that we can educate the public about food and health. And unfortunately, I wish there were farmers like you in our expo teaching dietitians perhaps a different side of this story. But we are told that these crops are safe, don't worry, the research has been done, we've been eating them for 20 years, there's nothing to worry about. But I think what we need to do just for one moment is to back up and explain to our listeners, what is a GMO? GMO stands for genetically modified organism. It could also be referred to as a genetically engineered organism. They are taking DNA from one species and inserting it into plants. They may take DNA from another plant. They may take it from an animal. They may take it from the soil. They may take it from wherever. But they are developing this organism in many cases. For the, the instance of the BT, they says, well, it, we found the Bacillus thuringiensis in the soil, which is a, a natural insecticide, which organic farmers can actually spray this on their crop and this natural bacterium will harm any corn borer that would eat it. And, and, it, and it breaks down the environment. The natural version of that is only harmful to that corn borer that, you know, it basically eats a hole in their gut. Well, the genetically engineered version of the BT is not like that. It, after the natural BT does its job, it is no longer harmful, anything returns to the soil. The genetically modified BT, there are studies that have followed that, and from nine months to as much as two and a half years after that corn plant is dead, that genetically engineered BT is still having an adverse effect on beneficial organisms that may exist in the soil. Hmm. So they're not telling the whole story there, and then the most widely used genetically engineered crops are those that have a insertion added to them to make them tolerate the application of a herbicide, a non-selective herbicide in many cases, being either a glyphosate-based herbicide or a glufosinate-based herbicide. That would be the two main ones that are used, and, and by far the glyphosate is is the most widely used. It basically kills everything it touches except the genetically engineered crop 
and now today the the weeds that have developed resistance to it, which the last time I checked there were over 23 weeds worldwide that have been identified as being resistant to glyphosate-based herbicides. Let's just take one moment to remind our listeners that we are speaking with Mr. Howard Vliger. He is a biological and crop nutrition advisor. He's a farmer with a long history of being a keen observer on his land. His farm is in Maurice, Iowa, which is in the northwest corner of the state. Mr. Vliger, I wonder if you could explain a little bit about, I know you've you've looked at the effect of glyphosate, for example. This is the one... We've got two genetically modified crops, really, two main genetically modified crops. We've got the the BT corn and the BT cotton, and then we've got the herbicide-resistant or the Roundup-ready crops, and there are many of them. There's soy, there's corn, there's canola, there's uh, now sugar beets. Alfalfa was most recently introduced, very unfortunately. But I wonder if you could describe a little bit about how the glyphosate application, because it's increased staggeringly so, I believe uh, it was Chuck Benbrook's research at Washington State University that said since the introduction of these herbicide-resistant crops, we've had an increase of more than 500 million pounds of glyphosate applied to our soil. And you sent me some studies looking at glyphosate in human urine. We know that there's glyphosate in our air, in our rain, in our rivers. Tell me about your observations about how glyphosate has affected the soil organisms. Well, glyphosate, first of all, is a broad-spectrum chelator. And as you know, but for the benefit of the listeners, chelate is a Greek word meaning claw or to hold. And it will tie up many nutrients, calcium, magnesium, manganese, zinc, iron, copper, nickel, cobalt, boron, molybdenum, selenium, potassium. It it chelates them in varying degrees wherever it is present. They may show up on, let's say you test the feed for a nutrient analysis and some of those elements may be present in the forage analysis or the grain analysis, but with the glyphosate residue that is many times there with it, that nutrient may not be available. So that broad-spectrum chelating effect of the glyphosate is very, very persistent. By tying up those nutrients, it shuts down the plant's ability to grow, and it also shuts down the plant's ability to defend itself against disease. But there have been numerous scientific studies that have documented that glyphosate will not kill any plant if it's raised in sterile soil. You need to have opportunistic or bad organisms present in the environment where the glyphosate is used in order for it to work. The glyphosate damages beneficial organisms in the soil that may control some of these opportunistic organisms. Then the opportunistic organisms, the control is gone, and in many cases the, the glyphosate is a, becomes a food source for the bad organisms that cause diseases that actually kill the plant. So when a plant doesn't die as a result of an application of glyphosate-based herbicide. It's not resistant to the glyphosate. It has built up its defense mechanisms, and the disease that used to kill it no longer affects it. Mm -hmm. And in the southeast part of the U.S., they have a weed called the amaranth pigweed. Mm -hmm. It used to be about three foot tall when it was mature. 
I have seen them 12 feet tall. Hmm. Used to have put on around 100,000 seeds. Now they put on over 400,000 seeds. Wow. You could call it 10 feet tall and bulletproof. I have talked with farmers in that part of the country that have spent as much as $150 per acre to have that one weed removed from their peanut and cotton fields because when it gets over 8 inches tall, it doesn't matter what cocktail mixture of herbicides you throw at it, you're not going to stop it. And if they don't have the hand labor come in and physically remove them from the field, it'll take over and your your yield will be very, very poor for the crop raised in that field that year. Hmm. You know, it's interesting, this irony of having to use even more labor now on these crops, because I remember being at a meeting, it was the Missouri Farmers Union meeting, and there was a, a gentleman there who was talking about, he was a, I love these terms that we throw around, right? He was a conventional farmer, which of course that means that they're using these, these chemicals on their land. And I asked him why he used them, and he said, well, because they were promoted as making the farmer's life easier, right? So, what happened was they were told that all they'd have to do is spray once and then they you know they wouldn't have to be so present in their fields maybe they could take a second job in town if they needed to i always say that you know if we could just provide farmers with some health insurance they wouldn't have to take a second job but that's another that's another whole interview but the message that i wanted to get across here is that many farmers were sold on this technology and this particular product because of this ease of application. It was going to make farming easier and more profitable. And yet, based on what you've just told me about these resistant weeds now, nothing could be farther from the truth. Well, and the the sad part of it is, how many years have we been using chemicals? You can go back to the end of the Second World War and when they decided that chemical warfare was something that nobody should be practicing that changed the focus of the chemical industry, and their focus was somewhat directed towards crop production. And all of the chemicals that have been used for weed control, like you say, were supposed to make it easier. And I asked people the question, okay, do chemicals get rid of weeds? And some will say yes, and the ones that really think will say no. If they do get rid of weeds, and we've been spraying them for 40-plus years or longer, why are we still spraying them? And in the case of the amaranth pigweed, the first year that I was fortunate to work with growers in southwest Georgia, we eliminated 85 to 90% of that weed from the portion of the farm they gave us to manage for them for that year, nutritionally and biologically. We eliminated 85 to 90% of that weed population, and it was thick because it looked like you sowed alfalfa where they had the conventional strip across the irrigation road, just by putting on the right source of calcium to bring that that imbalance that showed up on the soil test closer to a balanced state, the weeds disappeared. Hmm. Well, you know, what's the answer to weed control? Running over top of it with spray and killing them? Or really understanding the soil, getting things in balance, elemental balance, reinvigorating your biological diversity, the use of cover crops, getting the, the and the biological stimulants. What is really better for the ground? When you see the the weed problems go away, number one, you see the tilt in the soil improve. You see the 
the earthworm activity increase, you see the water penetration increase, you don't have the erosion. That was one of the things the farmer noticed right away. Of course, their CEC is so loyal, low in that part of the world. If you have a CEC of five, they think you have really, really heavy ground. And if you talk a CEC of five in our part of the country, they think, well, you can't farm that. That's nothing but sand. What is CEC? That's the cation exchange capacity. It's a, a description of the soil type that tells what the clay content of the soil is. I see. Well, I wanted to also speak to you about this new paper that's come out. It was published in the Journal of Organic Systems recently, and I wanted to ask you how you got involved in looking at a long-term toxicology study on pigs fed genetically modified soy and corn. And I should let our listeners know that we're going to have to bring you back so that we can have a longer conversation about this. But let's just whet our listeners' appetites, and why don't you let us know a little bit about how you got started with this research looking at the health of pigs fed GM corn and soy. I've been privileged to work with crop and livestock producers all across the country since 1992, helping and assisting and advising them in ways to decrease their dependency on on chemical and identify what's good for the soil and also identify then what's better for the livestock and, and eliminating the need for antibiotic use. And it's through the experiences that we saw as the genetically engineered crop feedstuffs, whether it be the forage or the grain, came into the feed supply, and it was consistent that we were seeing problems. There was a gentleman in Nebraska who was one of the first ones. He had BT corn for the first time ever. He put that one grain bin. He had conventional corn in another grain bin. When he fed the BT corn to his sows during conception, his conception rate one time dropped 30% and the next time dropped 70%. When he went back to the conventional corn, the conception rate went back up into the 90 percentile range where it always had been. And he couldn't get to the bottom of the problem, but we knew that the BT caused the problem because it, he, he used it. 30% drop, went back conventional, went back to normal, used BT again, 70% drop, went back to the conventional, things were normal. He could never get a, an answer from his veterinary who was trying to figure it out, but he said it was just like the veterinary was told one day, don't go any further with this. Now, whether that was the truth or not, but that was the feeling that he felt. We saw the same thing in, with customers in South Dakota who had explicit records. Everything was computerized. When they fed the BT, they saw their conception rate and their average pigs per litter and the size of the pigs that were born. They were 1.6 pigs per litter less with the BT corn in the ration for gestation or conception and gestation. And they also saw the weight per pig off about of a tenth of a pound. Mr. Blicker? 
let's let's stop here and let me have you come back and tell a little bit more about this story because it's so critical. So we'll have you come back next week and tell the rest of the story with this journal article that our listeners must hear. I want to remind our listeners that we have been speaking with Mr. Howard Vliger. He is a biological and crop nutrition advisor. He is a farmer based in Morris, Iowa. And in closing, I want to thank my listeners for joining us. I want to thank Mr. Vliger for being my guest. And I want to remind our Food Sleuth Radio listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOP studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Mr. Fligger, I hope you'll come back next week and tell the rest of the story. You bet. Mm-hmm.